and welcome to Bleak. This week we'll be covering the murder of Betsy Faria. Buckle your seatbelt, it's about to get bleak. <laughs> child so <laughs> no this is your host mrs doubtfire <laughs> oh mrs doubtfire yeah i was totally thinking julia child from my childhood i loved mrs doubtfire i think it's a great program it is that is a, a really cute movie really cute movie but it doesn't top my all-time favorite the burbs that is okay. a good movie. Well, if you haven't seen The Burbs, which most of you probably have not, you really <laughs> should check it out. I think everybody has seen The Burbs. No. It's a great movie, but it's like a cult classic. Like I've seen only... it maybe 9,000 times. Yeah, that's, it's a very good one. Yes, it mm-hmm. is. Yes, it never gets old either. No, it doesn't. No. I was trying to think of a good line from that movie. Yes. I've never seen somebody bang the hell out with their garbage with a stick. <laughs> yeah when they're driving down and oh yeah you just gotta watch it gotta watch it yes big recognition i don't typically even normally like 80s movies that much yeah and i think it's great i so yeah it is it is i like a lot of those creepy cult classics so like rosemary's baby that was the 70s i believe but anyways all right i made zoe watch a lot of those films harold and maude yeah, and look at her. Look at her go. <laughs> She's doing well. That's what I mean. <laughs> like, I don't mean it in a bad way. She's doing well. <laughs> See, it, it helped form a well-rounded, <laughs> well-rounded person. Yeah. Though she was, though she was like, "What are you making me watch?" <laughs> she, she was a teenager, not yeah. a youngin. Okay, so just a quick note, and it's not a huge deal, but last week, or the not last week, but our last episode. We covered Jody Sanderholm, the murder of Jody Sanderholm, and one of, so, for some reason, and maybe Laura can explain to you better, we said she lived in Arkansas, Arkansas, but she actually lived in Arkansas City, Kansas, which Laura can explain to you. Yeah, so Arkansas City, Kansas, I got confused because... In Kansas, only Kansans pronounce it as Arkansas City, but everyone else outside of Kansas pronounces the name Arkansas City. So I was getting confused when they were saying Arkansas, and and then it's some not, were saying Arkansas. It's and not some a big saying, deal at all, but I was just yeah, wanted to like clarify, clarify it. the location. Yes. yes. It was so. Kansas, not Arkansas, but it was in the town of Arkansas City, a.k.a. Arkansas City, if you're from Kansas, but we're outside of Kansas, so we would pronounce it Arkansas City. Very confusing. But she didn't live in Arkansas, she lived in Kansas. But that's, she lived in Kansas. That's really the only correction yes, we're making. that's the correction. And I just wanted to add Is that this. clear as mud, maybe? Yeah. <laughs> clear as mud. Yes. <laughs> Um, also, the last episode, right around the six-minute mark, the if for some reason the audio gets really quiet, but if you were listening and you're like, well, I can't hear it anymore, so I'm not going to listen to the rest, around the nine-minute mark, the audio goes back to completely normal. I don't know why it got like that, but I just figured I'd mention it if you wanted to 
you know, if you happen to not listen to the full episode for that reason. Oh. So anyhow, Least with that yeah. being said, I will, uh, we can just get started here because this case okay. is very convoluted mm-hmm. and complicated. Really bizarre. I will say, and I hate to say it's my favorite case because that just sounds maybe <laughs> in poor taste, but this case has so many elements to it. It's got wrongful conviction. It's got um, prosecutorial misconduct. It's got all kinds of, it's got serial killing. It's got kind of a, somebody not being caught because of their perception in society of being a, right. you know, an older white woman. Yep. So it's got so many elements, and it has actually been covered pretty widely. Thoroughly, and, yeah. But I feel like I have kind of my own take on it. I've yeah. thoroughly researched this case. Yeah. So, and Laura is familiar with it also. Yes. A lot of people might be, but um, there are so many different facets to this case that, um, you know, each time you you listen to somebody's version or somebody's uh, take on it, it, you pick up something a little bit different. Yeah, and I think, I'm hoping that I can provide some details or some... Right, extra details. That That's you maybe saying. haven't heard on this one. Yeah. So, um, so we are covering the horrific murder of Betsy Faria. This happened in uh, Lincoln County, which is in Missouri. And it's uh, Betsy was living in the city of Troy, Missouri. Troy, Missouri is a has a population as of the last census of around twelve to thirteen thousand, and Betsy Little. was born and raised. I don't know if she was born and raised in Troy, but she was born and raised in small town Missouri, definitely not far from Troy. So, just a little background on Betsy. She's described as hardworking, charismatic, very fun-loving. Um, she Betsy had one sister named. Julie, Mm -hmm. and Julie described her as always smiling, always laughing. Mm -hmm. Betsy has two daughters named Leah and Mariah, and they were from her, I don't know if she was ever married before, but they were from a relationship where the father was not in the picture. So she was a a single mom. mom. And a little fun note on Betsy, she was actually a DJ, kind of as a side hustle, and uh, she had an insurance job at one point for State Farm. That was kind of her day job. But apparently she played her DJ as a DJ at uh, Which weddings. Which was like her passion. Yes. She you know, loved to she dance. She loved that. She loved She probably would have done it full time, you know, to kind of a pay thing, you know. Yes. In that area, how many jobs, you know. Yeah, they probably don't have a ton of DJs, though, either. Well, that's true. So. That's true. So Betsy ends up meeting a man named Russell Faria in 1998. Uh, Russ describes like a world whirlwind romance, and uh, he met Betsy. She was working at a gas station, and he says Russ says that Betsy actually asked him out. Oh. And Russ had no children of his own, so he took on Mariah and Leah as if they were his own children i guess they were they're probably fairly young at the time yes i know one of them was three or four oh, okay so okay. um and the girls they i've actually seen interviews with mariah leah really hasn't d- 
done a lot of interviews, if any, but Mariah has done some, and she said, you know, he was our father for all intents and purposes. I can't talk today. All intents and purposes. Right. <laughs> so, um, they apparently had a good relationship. Russ admits that he did have a temper at times. You know, he wasn't perfect, as nobody is. He seemed kind of like a loud guy, just kind yeah, of boisterous. boisterous. Yeah, boisterous. So yeah, I agree, you know, very much. Just kind of his personality, sort of. And so the relationship, I cannot talk today, the relationship between Betsy and Russ, you know, they argued as many couples do. They right. had separated at one point. I don't know when exactly that was, but... They separated three times, and she actually, she was, she was very strong-willed as well. So it was very like this... That could be problematic yeah. for yeah. a relationship, <laughs> having two people like that. Yeah. But um, all in all, they it sounds like they really did love each other, but... Yeah, and Russ had said in one interview that separating kind of made him realize how much he did love her. Right. When, you know, he... Kind of like absence makes the heart grow fonder type of thing. Right. So, and so, but in 2009, everyone's just kind of living their life and normal family life, and Betsy gets some really terrible news. So I don't know how she find, found this out, if it was just routine testing, but she got diagnosed with breast cancer. Now, she when she died, she was only 42, so this had to have been when she was only 40. Oh. So finding out at 40 you have breast cancer is pretty... Unless it may be her first mammals, because 40 is your first screening. I mean, yeah. it changed the ages and everything, but that'd be awful to maybe go to your first mammal and it's... And you have cancer. I don't know what stage it was or anything like that, but she did have a mastectomy. Yeah. She also, due to this diagnosis, and understandably so, did have some intermittent depression. Mm -hmm. And um, on January 19th, 2010, Betsy actually got pulled over, and I don't know why she was pulled over and maybe driving erratically, but she told the police officer that she wanted a gun to kill herself. So... She had had suicidal ideations at times, but it was related to the diagnosis, and she did reach right. out to her family and friends for support, right. and I don't think it was ever like where she actually made an attempt on her life, Right. but I want to mention that because it kind of does come into play later on. Yeah. So... And everybody reacts differently to those type of diagnoses. Oh, for sure. You know, we all, yeah, people just... Maybe, like, I so want to die on my own terms type right. of a thing. Right, So, it, because she had this cancer diagnosis, many people, you know, her friends and family stepped up to help her. And because she had to sit in a chemo, like, getting infusions, right. she had friends driving her to chemo, and then sometimes they would sit there, you know, because it can take several hours. And so they'd sit there while she was getting the chemo infusions, and they would, you know, keep her company type of thing. Sounds like she was kind of a talker, and she needed yep. that, that so type of support. So one friend in particular that was, help, that was helping Betsy with rides and with keeping her company was a woman named Pam Hupp. Uh, Pam and Betsy met because they both worked for State Farm Insurance. Right. So... Pam, I don't think they were, like, the best of friends, but it was almost like Pam Hupp kind of showed up in her life more so after this diagnosis and offered to help her. 
Right. She it just seemed like she was like just good person doing good things. Right. For so I don't know exactly when, but Betsy was declared cancer free. I believe it was later in 2011. So she's declared cancer free. Oh, it was one year after the diagnosis. And so because, of course, she was thrilled with that news. And uh, Betsy had always wanted to go on an Alaskan cruise. So she, after being declared cancer free, she got to go on this Alaskan cruise. She swam with the dolphins. I guess 20 of her close friends and family went on the cruise with her. And they called it a celebration of life cruise. That's really cool. And when Betsy got back from the trip, unfortunately, and I'm, you know, when you have cancer, you have more chance of getting a recurrence right. than a person that's never had cancer. And also you get, you know, frequent screenings. Monitoring. Yeah. Yes. And yeah. so she found out on one of those screenings that she had recurrence of her cancer. So the cancer was back and this time it was stage four and in her liver. Oh no. So stage four cancer of the liver is unfortunately not considered a curable cancer. Right. And so of course this was really bad news and Betsy was told she had about two or three years to live. So it wasn't like and she was still going to continue the chemo, and, you know, sometimes you can uh, be involved in, like, a research study type thing. Right. And so it wasn't like she was going to die the next day or something like that, right. but of course... Eventually. Yeah, it's just, she's not, it's a kind of a poor prognosis. Right. Um, but it sounded like she was on board to keep doing the chemo and to try to extend her life, you know, well, maybe even more could. than that. Yeah, if right. she could. So on Tuesday, December 27th, this is a 2011, Betsy had a chemo appointment Mm -hmm. and Russ attended his weekly game night every Tuesday with a group of his buddies. Right. To get get away, get out of the house. Yep. And that was something that he had done for a while. It was part of the routine. So Russ explains that the plan was for Betsy to... Um, go to chemo, go and visit with her mom after chemo, and that Pam Hupp would give Betsy a ride home. Now, this is something that's varied from source to source, because I had heard that Pam, that Betsy told Pam that she didn't need a ride and asked her, you know, like sent her a text saying, hey, I don't need you to pick me up, because she had like a friend she hadn't seen in a long time who was going to do it. Right. And then Pam, like, ignored the text and showed up anyway. I've heard that, like, on several sources. So, oh. This particular one that I was taking notes on this time didn't mention that. Yeah. But either, even, it was either that Pam kind of pushed her way into giving her a ride despite that. Or, but either way, Pam gives her a ride. So I don't know what version is true. I guess it doesn't really matter at this point, but it kind of gives you an idea that Pam is being a little, like, why does she want to give her a ride so badly? Right. You know, it just seems a little pushy. Right. So Russ attends game night like he always does, and he leaves game night around 9.15 p.m. Right. And begins driving home. I believe his friend lived about a half hour away. Yeah. 
So Russ arrives home. He said he, you know, had a bag of dog food because he had stopped um, on the way. At, so he had gone to game night straight from work. Right. So he had stopped and got, like, dog food and stuff. So he said he set the dog food down on the floor when he got home. And he is taking off his jacket, and he looks over to the living room, and he sees his wife clearly dead and on the floor. She's laying oh on the gosh. floor, and it wasn't, it was like, awful. questionable. Like, it was so gruesome, the scene was, that he knew she was deceased. Right. So he's, of course beside himself he's freaking out he immediately calls 911 well, yeah. as you would yes so he tells the 911 operator he's he's screaming he's frantic he's like oh my gosh my wife killed herself and because well, she's been suicidal before right and that's yeah. something that's why i brought that up about yeah. the whole cop incident because right. you kind you cuz this comes under suspicion later on, but if you keep in mind the fact that Betsy has been suicidal, then it kind of makes more sense why he might think that. Right. And he, he said, oh my gosh, there's a knife in her neck, and she slashed her arms, and he just thinks she's killed herself. Right. Like, And that is an odd way to commit suicide. Uh, yep. But, wow. you know... Wouldn't be the first choice. It, <laughs> no, not, not for me either. But it does happen. Well, yeah, it does. It does. Like in a state of complete. And women don't typically choose that route either. That's statistically. But, um, side note, if you, there's an Ellen Greenberg case where they don't know if she was killed or killed herself and it was a stabbing. So check that one out. But anyway. um, That's interesting. So it has, you know, it's not like it's impossible, but it's not common. So when the police arrive, you know, like I said, it was immediately evident that she was murdered and not that she had committed suicide. The police were like, I don't know how Russ could have thought she killed herself based on how gruesome the scene was. Right, but you have to think, you're... He's shocked. He's shocked. She's she's, uh, spoken of suicide before, you know, I... What yeah. was he supposed to think, I guess? Like, I think, too, if you think about, like, your first thought, especially when you have your wife has been suicidal in the past, you're not going to think somebody murdered her, because what would their motive be to murder her? Right. She doesn't have that long to live. Right. I mean, what's the point? I and he just, like, so, of course, that's just what, but they just made a big deal about that, like, it was yeah, suspicious. Yeah, So, um, the crime... This comes from a crime scene investigator that worked on this case. Um, she said that, you know, if you en- when you entered the home, Betsy was laying on the living room floor. Um, there was a knife sticking out of the left side of her neck. She had defensive wounds found on her arms and hands. And she said one of her arms was cut nearly to the bone. Mm. There was blood splatter in the living room, and obviously they considered it a crime scene. Um, police did know that whoever killed Betsy would have had a lot of blood on themselves. And there was right. no blood trail leading out of the house. Right. So they were kind of confused by that. And they didn't see any evidence of a cleanup in the drains. So, you know, they can check the pipes for blood and whatnot, and they didn't find anything. Sinks and, yeah. Yeah. Nothing. So, for whatever reason, the police were immediately suspicious of Russ. 
I think it started with him declaring that he thought she committed suicide. Right. And But Russ willingly went to the sheriff's department to be interrogated that very night. Um, he tells the interrogator that he got off work at 5 p.m. Uh, he tells him about game night and that he called Betsy after work to make sure she didn't need a ride home from chemo. And he explains that Betsy's Betsy told him that her friend was going to pick her up, her friend named Pam Hupp. So um, Russ tells investigators he went to his friend Mike's house and they watched some movies and played some games. And it ended up starting with maybe two or three guys and it ended up being four guys in total that were there. So he was, you know, he leaves work around five and he was over at his friend's till about 9.15. Right. So Russ says they were going to start another movie, and he just wasn't up to start another movie, so he leaves. Right. Um, he was hungry, so he stopped at Arby's for a couple sandwiches. That's what you do when you're hungry. And <laughs> he, uh, I love you know, comes Arby's. home and stumbles <laughs> upon the scene and immediately calls, calls the police. Yeah. So the police immediately start asking Russ about life insurance. And Russ explains, you know, that yes, Betsy had life insurance and that she wanted the proceeds to be split between her two daughters. Right. So Russ knew that. Right. Not himself. Yeah. Not himself. Yeah. He, he, it sounded like that was what he was would be planning on doing would be to give it to the girls. Right. So at this point, Mariah was 17 and Leah was 21. Okay. So Leah was Older. a bit rebellious. At this point, so she's 21, so she was living with her aunt, Julie. We have an Aunt Julie, too. Yes. Sorry. Yeah, her Aunt Julie. Her Aunt Julie, not, aunt not aunt ours. <laughs> Shout out Aunt Julie. Woo-woo. <laughs> um, because, you know, they just said Leah had some problems. Right. She had stolen money from her grandma, and Russ said she kind of had a shady boyfriend, and that at one point, Leah and her boyfriend showed up at Betsy and Russ's house, and they called police because... They were seemed, breaking yeah, in. Yeah, they were kind of breaking in or they were going to steal, steal something. Stuff. So they were like, it seemed like the relationship at that point in time between Leah and Russ was maybe a bit contentious. Right. And Betsy as she well. She was going through a... A hard time. A hard time, a criminal, you know, minor criminal time, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> Which it sounds like she's doing a lot better now. Right. She but, had a bumpy... She was young. Yes. And had a... As, as it, you know, these, it happens. It does happen. You hear <coughs> these, these things. No, you never had a criminal past. But I'm like, Laura, it happens? Laura was a little bit rebellious. I was rebellious. <laughs> I was not criminally rebellious. Okay, I did not. Well. Did I do anything illegal? I don't know. I didn't. No, she never did. I'm just kidding. She was more just alternative. Like, she had <laughs> the black hair. Not criminal at all, actually. But just, like listening to Marilyn Manson at the, and having the Marilyn Manson church while singing church. <laughs> having a Marilyn Manson shirt while singing in the church choir. <laughs> I do remember that. Yeah. With black hair. Oh yeah, yeah that it was, was <laughs> it was nice. <laughs> I was a li- I was not like that at all, so it was a little bit like frightening for me at the time. But now that I'm older, I I, I was just expressing expressing myself, you know, yes. and I and I it's a 
I don't know, as, as a musician and as a, a, I think I thought of myself more as a forward thinker. Yes. <laughs> Anyhow, we can relate to rebellious teenage years, just yes. not illegal activity. Um, but no judgment here. So anyhow, um, police interview Russ into the wee hours of the morning, and they had nothing concrete to hold him on, right. so he's allowed to, to go. So on the morning of December 28, 2011, investigators, of course, are going to start interviewing all of Betsy's family and friends, kind of right. working their way from the closest people on out. So mm -hmm. the first place they go is to the Aunt Julie's house. So Betsy's sister, Julie, whom the daughter, Leah, is living with. Because they think, well, if Leah and Betsy have this complicated relationship, maybe Leah had something to do with it. Right. Um, so the police don't initially tell Julie and Leah why they're there. Um, so they ask them what they had been doing the evening before, and the aunt, Julie, explains that she took Leah to the cell phone store, and... Leah was on Betsy's cell phone plan because Betsy's her mom and they had she had wanted to get some kind of upgrade for the cell phone right right as as uh, young adults and teenagers frequently want to do exactly <laughs> in my experience yes <laughs> and so they called Betsy at like 6 30 and said hey can you be available yeah, we're gonna call you in a little bit so you can approve this upgrade. Right. And Betsy had told them that she would be, but once she kind of went in and picked out the new phone or whatever it was, they called Betsy several times from the phone shop and she was not, and she didn't answer. Do we know why she didn't answer? But that kind of like, gives you a timeline. Right. Right. So she something happened prior to that time like well she they talked to her at around 6 or 6 30 and then right. they're calling her at 7 30 ish right so something happened in that in very short window hour 45 minutes or whatever it was and yeah. obviously that doesn't it's not a hundred percent but if she's saying yeah i'll be available for this and then suddenly why would she just decide not to right it's, that doesn't it even make strange. sense i'm surprised they didn't go over to check on her or yeah that is true it's a little weird to me but I, you know but maybe they you know because the relationship was complicated i think maybe they thought she was just maybe changed her mind and or something came up with her illness and she needed to address something. Or she fell asleep because she wasn't feeling well. Or she had chemo that day. Yeah. Right. So, yeah. for whatever reason they just went home. And uh, the police finally, of course, tell them why what happened and they, they're shocked. Uh, so, after that, because they knew Pam Hupp was the one that dropped Betsy off. So, Betsy, after chemo that day, went to her mom's house. Right. And I don't know exactly what parts of the day Pam was present for, but I do know Pam is the one that drove her from her mom's house to her own home. So Pam dropped her off at home. Right. For sure. Yes. So they're asking Pam, you know, can you just walk us through what, you know, dropping her off? And Pam says she walked Betsy to the door until Betsy could get the light on. Because she said the house was really dark and Betsy seemed a bit spooked. And then she said Betsy asked her to stay and watch a movie, but Pam told Betsy she couldn't. 
And then the police said, well, well, how come you couldn't stay for a movie? And Pam says, well, I didn't want to be there when Russ got home. Whoa. So, of course, that kind of piqued the police's interest because yeah. they're like, well, well you don't, why, why don't you want to be around Russ? Right. So Pam says um, the reason that she didn't want to be around Russ was because she just said he's not very nice to her verbally, her meaning Betsy. And he said it, you know, makes me uncomfortable. She said Russ is real pompous. And um, so Pam also tells police that Betsy considered Pam like a confidant of sorts. And she tells police that uh, the relationship between Betsy and Russ was tense and in trouble. Right. And that Russ was making comments about how rich he was going to be after Betsy dies. Cause she had life insurance oh. and she said the last the, about a weekend the weekend before she was murdered that russ was like let's we're gonna play this game and russ was putting a pillow over her face and saying something to uh, you know along the lines of this is how it feels when you die and oh. just you know really a terrible she was making accusations though Right. There was no... The, well, of course. They have no proof of no that. No proof. That's what she's... That's, that's what she's Pam's saying. narrative. Right. So, then police ask if Betsy was concerned about life insurance, and Pam says, yes, absolutely. As a matter of fact, she asked me to be the beneficiary because she was concerned Russ was going to not give the money to Leah and Mariah. Right. So, of course, the police are interested in this. And, um, so instead of the police thinking that, oh my gosh, now Pam Huff just recently had, this was like four days before the murder, she had this life insurance policy transferred into her name. Right. Instead of that, the police think, oh, Russ found out about it and that's, and then he killed her. Right. So it's like, instead of letting the evidence show them what to think, they went in with this preconceived notion of Russ and they flipped it to go with their narrative. Right. That's how they, that's, that's kind so, of becomes a theme in this case. That's just so, uh It's frustrating, to say the awesome. least. So, the of course, a couple... The scenes. Yes, Alan's our producer. Sorry. <laughs> this, uh, for our non-paying He's, podcast. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Okay, so the prosecuting attorney for this case was a woman named Leah Cheney. Yes. She's not my favorite person in this story, I will tell you that. Um, no. So, Leah Cheney is interviewed on this documentary that I watched, and she starts going through why she thought Russ was the killer. And she's the prosecuting And she's the prosecuting attorney. So, the autopsy was done, and Betsy had 55 stab wounds. So, that's a ton. And a lot of them were inflicted post-mortem. So, she she was killed, and then they just kept stabbing. Like, Yes, it's terrible. That's awful. And... So they said, well, this was a rage killing. Typically those are done by people that know you, not by just like a home invasion. Right. 
So that kind of, they were like, well, somebody that knows her, he checks that box. And um, once they get these autopsy results back, they also found she did have live seminal fluid on the exterior of her body. Okay. Now, Leah Cheney says this is very incriminating. It's a very big deal. And the thing is, you find out later that there were eight sperm cells on Betsy's body or on and around, in and around. And not to get graphic, but there should be millions of sperm cells <laughs> yes. if, if it was a recent right. act. Right. And Russ does say they had intimacy about four days before the autopsy. Right. So that would have been, you know, like a day or two before she died. So eight cells. There I are, mean, you could pick those up anyway. <laughs> I mean, well, yeah, it's, it's just the way that this Leah kind of spins that fact to make it seem incriminating is right. troubling. Yes. They yes. do find out Russ was having an affair, which obviously doesn't look good. Right. The mistress was questioned, and she just she had said she eventually ended the affair because Russ wouldn't commit to her. He wouldn't pick. Right. So that doesn't look good, but again... Well, they had separated three times, so maybe yeah, during that... that and maybe she was with other people. I mean, I don't know that. I'm right. just saying we that don't you know don't... the dynamics of, of that exactly. part of the relationship. Nobody really speaks of that, or, or who, maybe they don't know, you know? <laughs> so. Right. So because, you know, the evidence was largely circumstantial, Lincoln County exec... Executed, executed another search warrant on January 3rd, which is ridiculous because this crime happened on December 27th. So now the scene has been released back to the family, and people are in and out of that house, and now they're doing a search warrant to process the kitchen. What is that, six days later? That's... Or seven days later? It makes... That should be totally inadmissible. Anything found. Right. That's completely So during this second search warrant, because again, they had searched the house right away. Right. And numerous digital photographs were taken of the kitchen, because that was their main reason for doing this second search warrant. Right. And according to Leah Cheney, this second search warrant revealed that blood had been cleaned up at the sink. And she makes this big deal about the fact that the killer knew where the towels were. Oh. Because their towel drawer was not right next to the kitchen sink. And when they could see on this blood trail that the killer only opened up that towel drawer as if to imply the killer knew where the towels were. And she said that was like, that was literally like the main reason that put him over the edge to arrest Russ. Was this towel thing. <laughs> towel drawer? Which I just was like... You think you'd have to have a little more... That, I mean, that... I mean, they... You know, concrete sh- evidence than that. Well, that's... The towel not, I drawer. mean... I mean... For all you know... To me, that just doesn't... What DA is going to be like, oh, yeah, arrest. Well, and I'm Pam Hupp would know where the towel drawer was, too. Because right. so, so would anybody, her. maybe, who's ever been there. Or, yeah, or maybe the killer got lucky and right. happened to find it right away. Right. Right. Who knows? Um, so on January 4th, 2012, the prosecution gets a warrant for Russ's arrest. And Russ is shocked by this. 
you know, he wasn't expecting it. <laughs> right. And, uh, but he, he's in jail. He immediately calls his cousin. It's her. She's a woman named Mary Anderson. Right. Mary Anderson and all of Russ's family did believe he was innocent. And Mary knew this really good attorney, a defense attorney named Joel Schwartz. So Russ hires Joel Schwartz. And By the way, awesome attorney. He's a great attorney. Yes. Um, so he goes to interview Russ in jail. Mm -hmm. And Schwartz says after speaking to Russ for several hours, he just knew Russ didn't do it. And he doesn't always think that about every client. Like right. He really, and he said the biggest reasoning was because four other people were with him for the entire evening. Right. So it wasn't like... So they knew, based on the autopsy, that she was murdered somewhere in the 6.30 to 7.30 p.m. range. Right. Which lines up with that cell phone store thing. Right. And Schwartz said, you know, I've heard of one person lying about someone's alibi, but not four separate people. Right. Right. So immediately when he found out there were four people that alibied Russ, he thought we should be able to get him exonerated with well, that yeah. alone. And he said that whole time period, he was with those people. Exactly. And he said everything Russ said was verifiable. So right. um, Schwartz's defense relies on the fact that other people had access to Betsy, including Pam Hupp. The fact that the insurance proceeds were switched to Pam four days before the murder, and Pam was the last person to see Betsy alive. Right. So, of course, <laughs> you know, he's got the alibi, and then he wants, he's got this alternative suspect in Pam Hupp. Right. Now, he's like, I don't know if Pam did it or not, but she's definitely just as much of a suspect as Russ. Well, yeah. If not I more. Mean, right. So, bef right before the trial, so, you know, Joel is, an, Joel Schwartz, the attorney, is initially pretty confident in the case, and then shortly before the trial, Leah Cheney files a motion to exclude any mention of Pam Hupp as a suspect. That. And she cannot, he is not allowed to talk about the fact that the insurance policy, the life insurance policy, was changed into Pam's name four days prior to the murder. I can't believe a judge would <laughs> rule that that was okay okay or inadmissible that it that's completely and then when they question leah cheney about this she's like well you can't she's like if you're gonna do a defense that someone else did it you have to have some proof and it's like but there was there was pretty substantial yeah she had a motive a motive motive yeah 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 yes there was so, no motive and so many even if it's circumstantial, that's circumstantial is evidence. There. Right. So. Right. Anyhow, that was her explanation for it. So, of course, Joel, find, Joel Schwartz, the attorney, finds this out, and he's like, this is not good. Right. You know, like, our whole defense relies on this. Right. So, the trial began November 18th, 2013. And at this point, Russ had been in jail for nearly two years. Wow. They kept him in jail that whole time? Yes. Yep. It was a murder charge. Well, I know it's a murder charge, but was the bail amount maybe too high? Or maybe they I didn't let him I think it might have been no bail. Oh, it might have been a no bail? Yeah. Okay. Or something. It was either too much or no bail. Okay. So, Aaliyah... 
Aaliyah. Leah announces in the opening statement that Russ's motive was greed and that he wanted Betsy's insurance policy. Now, mind you, Joel Schwartz is told he's not allowed to bring up Pam Hupp's name. Right. So, of course, Joel Schwartz is like, well, she's bringing Pam into this. Right. And so he, like, objects, and they hold, like, a sidebar. And the judge tells them, well, Leah can, the prosecutor, she can mention Pam, but you can't. You think the judge might have been a little bit, um... They were in cahoots, for sure. In uh, the the prosecuting attorney's corner, like the, something oh, was yeah. going on there. There was definitely something going on. And the reason, I still can't understand the reason. I, you know, like what was the... And Schwartz described it as he thought the judge, I don't know if the judge was really inexperienced, right. but that she just simply didn't really know what, excuse me, what she was doing. I, I wonder if she's still a judge. I have no information about that. Well, I hope not. So at this point, after Schwartz finds this out, you know, he's, like, even more worried. Because now he's said, you know, I'm up against a prosecutor that's literally going to do anything to win. Right. And a judge that's incompetent. Right. That's what he's up against. (laughs) And so... It's not probably... It's not looking good at this point. Exactly. And on top of that... Betsy's uh, daughters testified against Russ, unfortunately. They kind of had been brainwashed by the prosecution because, you know, the police are basically telling them that he did this. Right. And... But still, that man helped raise you. you, And it's sad because, you know, other people said, you know, they really did have a great relationship overall, even though there were bumps in the road. Right. But... The girls made Russ look like a horrible person on the stand. Right, even though that was their only father figure. And oh. something that I thought was kind of striking is the the sister Julie, Betsy's sister, she makes a comment that, like, you know, she they just wanted to get someone put away for it, like someone held responsible. And she never really alludes to the fact of, like, don't you want it to be the right person? The right person. And it didn't it's seem like It's like they it. just wanted it to be over... They wanted the the closure, uh, but they didn't want, you know, they didn't care who it was. I mean, that's it's so bizarre. Wouldn't they at some point go, you guys, this is, he didn't do this. Like, Yeah, know. one would think, but that's yeah. unfortunately not what happened. Not what happened. So the prosecution also says Russ showered after the murder, but the defense argued, you know, all the drains were checked, including the pipes, and there was no blood. And so he showered, and again, he called the police within like two minutes of arriving home. So how on earth he cleaned up and took a shower, but then he, like, it just, none of it makes any sense. No. So the Lincoln County detective testifies that about that search that was done seven days after the murder. Right. The defense was never given a report about that second search. Oh. Which... Aren't they required to do they that? They are, are. And there were all these photos taken at that second search. 132 pictures, to be exact. And they all disappeared. 
They couldn't find them. They got lost. They lost them, so now somebody's just testifying about it? So, yes. Oh, convenient. Right. <laughs> so, the jurors sound... The jurors in the case were asked to just take the detective's word regarding what the photo showed. So, and of course, Joel Schwartz said he objected to this, and of course, they didn't care because it's not. The, and yeah. the Arby's receipt was for nine oh nine p.m. and he called the police not long after that. So it, it just not adding up. But for whatever reason, it was like the jury. They were working so hard to make that timeline fit where he could kill her, but they, it just, anybody could, should have been able to see right through that. Yeah, like, they showed um, them trying to make that drive from the friend's house. And they were, like, zooming. They, they, were, were, like, <laughs> they were going, like, 90 miles per hour to try to make their timeline, when like, to prepare for court. Yeah. And they couldn't do it without literally going, and they had sirens going. Right. Where you can drive it. Like, Russ was not going to be driving like that. (laughs) No. No. That would have flagged someone's attention, and he would have probably been pulled over. Exactly. So that part was very, you know. But, of course, the the jury's not getting it presented to them that way. You know, they're getting it like, oh, we were able to make it from, that's all they're being told. We we were able to make it from the friend's house. They're not seeing the video. Right. That that they should. Show. <laughs> yes, exactly. So, but still, if if you're a jury and you're thinking about all these different facts, you've got the four people um, saying we were with him during this entire time frame. We've got the Arby's receipt. You know, you think you could put two and two together, and uh, you know, any anyone could put two and two together and say, okay, well, this, obviously, he didn't do, commit this crime. He didn't, uh, there was, he didn't kill her. And something that Joel Schwartz, the lawyer, mentioned that he thought it was just unreal that, you know, four innocent men were implicated in a murder plot. Right. Referring to the game night buddies. And you just don't do that. You no. Know, like, that's just not okay. And then it's like, you had, and Leah, I'm trying to think of what her excuse was about that. She goes, well, I wasn't saying, you know, that they were involved. I was just saying that their timeline, I didn't agree with their timeline. And it's like, no, no. you actually said they were all in on it. Right. They, right. So the jury only deliberated for five hours. And the prosecutor said, oh... I really thought that meant he wasn't going to be convicted and that we lost. But to my pleasant surprise, you know, we won. (laughs) So he was convicted of first-degree murder, Russ Faria, and he was uh, given a sentence. Yep, life in prison without parole. His mother collapsed at the news. Yes, as would any mother. Yes. Terrible. And one of the jurors after the trial was asked what made them think Russ was guilty. And the juror told them that she knew Leah Cheney, the prosecutor, and her whole family did, and they just trusted her, plain and simple. So, and and you brought up before when we were talking, you shouldn't, should you be able to know the the prosecutor or their family? No, I mean, when they're, on the jury? Right, when they're screening jurors, like that's why sometimes they move trials into different counties. Right. You one of the things, like, if you know the attorney, 
Like, right. to me, that would be automatic disqualification. Or their family. Yeah. Like, their parents or close family. And I know, you know like, I'm Lincoln just... County and uh, Troy, Missouri's a small town. Right. But it's like... Like, I was, telling, someone who I was telling you, like, I don't know who our prosecutor is in the county I live in, to be no, quite honest. And who their family Ex- is. Yeah, so <laughs> they, there's, it's not like they could never find a person that doesn't know the prosecutor. Like, right. I just don't believe that. Right. There's and if it's an issue, then you have to move the trial. Move the trial, exactly. So uh, that is it on just another and thing. that might go back to the judge being maybe inexperienced or not. Right. Yes, for sure. Because someone competent. Someone yeah. had to approve of that. Right. So, of course, Joel Schwartz immediately gets to work on Russ's appeal. Right. Um, so, two years later, so now Russ has been in jail going on four years. Joel Schwartz says he's sitting in his office. This is the attorney. And he receives, like, a manila envelope, and he opens it, and it's unmarked, like, as to who it's from. And there's a CD in the envelope, and it's a CD. So he puts the CD in, you know, his computer, and it's a, it's got the pictures from, that were supposedly lost in the trial. Wow. And the, with the luminol testing that they had done in the kitchen during that second shady search that they did right he has no idea who you know somebody had a conscience yes somebody knew that it wasn't right and not only that they found out that that cd had been accessed by the prosecution on five separate occasions so they knew so they knew it was there but they knew that it wouldn't favor them right they knew that it wouldn't favor them and so they the investigator how did they get the investigator in on it that's the thing is you know you talk about like conspiracy theories this really was a conspiracy it was because you've got you've got the judge the attorney the investigators right maybe even like uh like officials like secretaries and yeah you know in on this and oh, i'm yeah. wondering if one it was like some kind of uh and then you have to wonder a paralegal or if something. they've done this kind of thing before oh for sure yeah you know, i mean this isn't just something you just do on a whim right and i think she really wanted to win the case and there was a lot of pressure because that county doesn't have a lot of murders right but you still need to get the right person exactly exactly so of course, because of this new information, um, something else he finds out that's very pertinent is, so Joel Schwartz gets a call from an attorney that tells him that Betsy's daughters are actually suing Pam Hupp uh, because she never gave them the insurance proceeds. That's just... She kept them. And of course, that changes everything. Well, right. So it comes out in the civil suit that uh, Pam Hupp was actually pressured by multiple officials, including Prosecutor Leah Cheney, to make a trust for Leah and Mariah, Betsy's daughters. Right. So that she wouldn't be a suspect. Right. They're like, do this, and this is what's going to... So they knew she was a viable suspect, and they helped her not be one. Right. But but then she still went... (laughs) Probably spent the money. I don't know. They never say what happened. I'm sure she did. Yeah. So 
Days after Russ was found guilty of the murder, Pam mm-hmm. revoked the trust. She defunded the trust. That is completely insane. So that's obviously, you know... There wasn't someone monitoring this. And there's actually a that's video... That's that... Well, yeah. That, I mean, well, that's why this lawyer's calling and saying, hey, like, there's this new information about... And there was a video of Pam talking to this guy, telling her, you know, you need to make this trust. And she was like, you know, if I really wanted money, she's like, my mom is worth a half a million dollars. So I could just, you know, get her life insurance. I wouldn't have to take on somebody who's physically stronger than me like Betsy. She said that. That's so... That's a creepy, crazy thing to say to somebody. Right. Why would that be your response? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so this, the new photos, um, yep. coupled with this new information about Pam Hupp, they granted Russ a new trial. And right. he was granted bail, and so he was able to get out of jail after four years. That's crazy. So because of the issues with the jury last time they decide to request a bench trial and what that That is is where a judge decides the outcome and that's it there's no jury so whatever the judge decides that's what it is that's guilty innocent that's that and a side note betsy's daughters lost the civil suit against pam unfortunately because there was no documentation that betsy had wanted the girls to get the trust now, maybe Betsy had planned on writing up a document, and that was of concern to Pam. But why Why the heck would, over her daughters, Pam, why would she pick Pam to get the 150000 That's a great question. Yeah. Okay, um, so Pam now is saying that she and Betsy were lesbian lovers. Um... <laughs> Four years after, though, right? Yeah, four years after the murder, they're lesbian lovers, and that's why Russ was so angry, because he caught them together. But then, still... He said something about... Even if they are lesbian lovers, or whatever. Which they were not. They they weren't, but even if they were, let's, you know... Entertain the idea. Entertain the idea. They're lesbian lovers. Um, Why still would she choose her lesbian lover over her two daughters? Well, you still that. wouldn't. Well, exactly. So, that so, blows that right there. Yeah, that's insanity. So, on November 2nd, 2015, yeah. there's a second trial, and Russ Faria is acquitted of well, the yeah. murder. Finally, Not only is geez. he acquitted, the judge says he was outraged. He said, this is like the most poorly done investigation. He said, I now have more questions than answers. And he just was kind of flabbergasted by the whole thing. Right. So the family at this point is starting to kind of doubt whether Russ is actually responsible for Betsy's murder or not. Finally. Um, They they finally are kind of like, hmm, Hmm. maybe it wasn't him. Right. Um, And you gotta think. I mean, you know, we can't speak for anybody, but you kind of have to wonder if they kind of knew the you know what i mean some of them kind of knew who it really was i agree so on so you know russ is living a normal life he's trying to move on after right. being in jail for 4 years and on august 16th 2016 a 911 call comes in from a home in o'fallon missouri okay 
There is a woman that can be heard screaming, and she starts reporting a home invasion. Mm -hmm. She's saying, help, help. And uh, she said, somebody's in my house. And she, you hear gunshots on this 911 call, and the caller reports having shot the intruder. Sure. Now, Missouri has very loose standard ground type laws. So right. if you feel, feel threatened by an intruder, you right. can shoot them. I right. mean, their That's laws fair. are really loose on that compared to other states. Right. Turns out this female caller is none other than Miss Pam Hupp, or Mrs. She's actually married, too. Um, Which so, she's a notorious in the area. Right. They, they know they of her. They knew. Like, oh, no. Because there have been <laughs> articles in the paper right. and stuff. So Pam says she was running errands. She had gone back home to take her dog out, and she got back into her vehicle, presumably to run more errands, right. and someone jumps in her car with a knife. Pam says she's able to slap the knife out of the man's hand. She then runs inside her house, grabs her gun, and shoots the intruder five times, and he is gunned down, basically, in the entryway of her home. And... So, at this point, the police are kind of, you know, they have to investigate well, everything. Yeah. So, they, the first thing they do, they find out who is the dead man on the floor. Right. And um, they, have, they couldn't actually figure that out right away. They didn't know who he was. And um, eventually, because he had he didn't been... didn't have ID on him or whatever. Right, right. Yeah. And he didn't have, like, a wallet or anything like that. Right. They do find in the dead man's pocket a note that has, like, a checklist on it in really terrible handwriting. Yeah. And it says, one of the things on the checklist is get Russ's money. And, uh, you know, another thing it says is take Pam to the bank, take out $150,000. Now, remember, Betsy's life insurance policy was 150000 and then it says, drop money in woodpile at Russ Faria's house. Well, so don't yeah. you think that Russ would have assumed she spent the money? Well, that, exactly. That's one, like, why would you think she just is going to have that sitting just, in there? Yeah. So, they start kind of dissecting this 911 call, and you can hear a man talking who is the perpetrator, or the alleged perpetrator, and you can kind of tell that this man has some kind of a speech impediment. Sure. So they get speech analysis done by the FBI, and they are able to determine that the man is saying, I'm going to do to you what I did to Russ's wife. Okay. So the implication is that this intruder was the person that killed Betsy Faria. Oh, sure. So Pam goes to the station voluntarily for questioning. Right. And she tells police that Russ had just gotten out of jail and that there was just the civil trial with Russ's daughters. And she's like, Russ was sitting behind me in court. And um, she basically was trying to imply that Russ had recruited the dead man to go after her life insurance payout. Like he was mad that she won the civil trial. And Pam denies having ever seen this man before. So, of course, 
August, in, uh, this is August in 20, of 2016, Russ says, you know, I'm sitting in my living room. Right. And I get this call from my dad, and my dad's like, oh my gosh, she did it again. She did it again. <laughs> and his, he's like, who did what again, you know? No. And he's like, she shot somebody else, referring to Pam Hutch. <laughs> so, of course, right after that, uh, Russ gets a call from his attorney, Joel Schwartz. Yeah. And he says, hey, you know, Russ, the police really want to talk to you. So, Russ knowing he hadn't done anything, willingly goes to the police station with, with his attorney. And he says... Reluctantly, because, come yes, on. he did say, you know, at this point, I they don't trust police. They'd already arrested him for four years. Right. Yeah. And so, uh, he's like, but I had nothing to hide, so he said, right. I let the police have my cell phone for, yep. like, three days. Yeah. And they took handwriting samples to compare it to that note, and they checked his alibi, and Russ was... You know, released, and he was never like in jail at, over the, but this time. Yeah, he was. Uh, you know, they did. They knew he. They were able to exclude him from this whatever happened. Right. So through fingerprints, the police are finally able to identify the deceased male on in Pam's entryway. Well, he's probably at the morgue now, but at the time, yeah. Um, as a man named Louis Gumpenberger. Now, Louis Gumpener, <laughs> Gumpener, Gumpenberger had a petty criminal history so nothing violent right and um that's why his prints were on file okay he's a 33 year old single man okay and they get his last known address is about 15 minutes away from pam's house okay it's like an apartment complex okay. so investigators go to the address and they are able to find lewis's mother living at that address oh sure so investigators tell Lewis's mother what is alleged that Lewis has done or was involved with at any rate. Well, I'm sure she's devastated, too. Yeah, she was very upset. But just right. in regards to how she wanted to explain to them how Lewis could not have been involved, she tells them, um, several years prior, Lewis was involved in a very severe car accident that actually left him physically and mentally disabled. Right. He couldn't. He had the mental capacity of about a 12-year-old at best and the physical ability of someone in their 80s. Ooh. He walked with a limp, he was unsteady on his feet, right. and he was unable to run. Right. So, she said, you know, for his day-to-day -day life, he can't work. Right. He sits out front, smokes cigarettes, sure. and very gullible and easily influenced by people. Right. So someone could just drive by and be like, hey, you, you want to do this? Yeah, get him involved in, a, in something. In really, anything, probably. Which is horrible, but right. that's the world we live in. Yeah. So based on uh, Gumpenberger's physical and mental limitations, they're like, there's no way Pam's story could be true. Right. So at this point, they're like, he didn't put together a home invasion. <laughs> right. <laughs> Which, and it was more complicated than just a home invasion. You're talking about, like, oh, he yeah. was going to, uh, you know, Get supposedly, you know, drive her to the bank, which I don't even know if he drove. Right. Did he, could he even drive? You know, if he's got the mental capacity of a 12-year-old. They don't, they probably don't allow people. I wouldn't, because 12-year-olds aren't allowed to drive. Right, that's what I mean. They probably, he probably didn't drive. I and, mean, I don't uh, know, but probably not. So they started investigating Pam, finally, right. and they find a receipt in Pam's trash. Here we go again with the ridiculous receipts. <laughs> 
for a purchase from a dollar store for so they find the knife that the intruder had in Pam's car because right. of course the knife is still there because the intruder was shot dead and so they take the knife as evidence and they're finding a receipt in Pam's trash for that very knife that was found in her car that was supposedly the perpetrator's knife. Oh. It was a very specific butcher knife that she got at like a Dollar General store. So it was not a very... Not a great knife. No. Are you thinking of the knives they have at Dollar General? I mean, I don't know. So investigators went to the Dollar store and, you know, they find that the knife was the same one. Right. And um, so then they start kind of analyzing this 911 phone call. Right. And let me tell you, I don't know if this lady was so used to getting away with things that she just didn't even try. Right. But she's she literally like, anything. she's just like, help, help, someone's breaking in. Oh my gosh, a man, help. No. And it's so <laughs> fake. It's so bad. It's really bad. You can it's, listen to it, it's out there. Oh, it is so bizarre that she, yeah. And uh, of course, the police are like, wow, it really sounds like this is rehearsed and that she's acting. And another right. really ridiculous thing, so there's a small section of carpet under Louis Gumpenberger's body. Like, she knew someone was going to be bleeding on her carpet, and she didn't want it to make a mess on her carpet. So she put, like, a little piece of rug there to, like, so the blood would go on that piece of rug and not on her carpet. And she doesn't think people are going to notice this? That's That was my that, thought, exactly. I'm like... <laughs> That's how, because she's so narcissistic. She's narcissistic in her mental capacity. Her mental capacity has to be a little... I don't know that I think that. I think she's lower. gotten away with so many things. Related. Like she's just kind of upping the ante. Yeah. I mean, like, just kind of... I think she just thinks, you know, I'm this older white woman. They're never going to suspect me of things like this. Right. You know, I've always gotten away with things based on who I am. And why would it change now? That's what I think. I don't think she had a low IQ. Mm, no, I mean, but something is is definitely off. I mean, she's off. She's a psychopath. <laughs> she's so. a psychopath. I mean, yeah, a total psychopath. Like, like the diag. She has to have the diagnosis of a psychopath. For sure. Yeah. You know, tendencies or whatever that the official diagnosis is. You know. So police end up getting a call from one of their partner agencies. Right. And um, this, they say, the caller says, you know, so he's, this is a police agency calling another police agency. Mm -hmm. And so they're calling the police agency that's handling Pam Hupp's investigation. Right. And he says, I think you're going to want to hear about this call we got from a woman. He said about a week prior to the... Louis Gumpenberger incident, a woman named Carol McAfee, or Carol McAfee, sorry, called the police, and um, so Carol McAfee is a resident of Rolling Meadows Mobile Home, mm -hmm. which is a like a mobile home park in Missouri. Right. And um, so she, this woman tell, says, you know, I had gone outside to let my dogs out, and this woman pulls up to my mobile home in a black GMC Acadia. Mm -hmm. And she's just staring at me. Oh. So the woman Super normal. thought maybe she was like a new neighbor. So right. she approaches the vehicle and she's like, you know, can I help you? Yeah. That's why are you staring at me? Yeah, why are you staring at me? <laughs> but she was just trying to be polite. So right. 
The woman in the car tells Carol that she's a Dateline producer. Oh. And that they're recording 911 calls and reenactments. She then tells um, the woman, if you will help us with this reenactment of this 911 call, we'll give you $1,000 cash, no paper trail to Uncle Sam, which, I'm sorry, if Dateline is paying you, they're not going to be tax-free. <laughs> no, and they're not going to be just strolling through a mobile home park. Just one... <laughs> producer or and, whatever uh, it's funny on the i think it was keith like, morrison yeah. said just fyi like we don't go find people <laughs> to do our reenactment <laughs> like, not in that way yeah that's not what we do we don't go through neighborhoods and she tells yeah so and then the woman in the car tells the woman tells carol that she can't bring her cell phone or her keys because the producer doesn't like clutter that just doesn't even make sense. <laughs> oh, specifically, your cell phone and keys. I yeah. mean, look. So, Carol. You've got to have, like, in your head, like. What's going on here? Yeah, warning signs blinking, you know, like. Oh. So, Carol gets in the car, mm-hmm. and she's like, I agreed despite being a bit suspicious, but she's like, you know what? I kind of yeah. just wanted to find out what the woman is up to. Right. So. Um, you know, of course, I don't think initially she's thinking, oh, my life is in danger. She just was curious. Right. So, two, about two minutes into that car ride, Carol's like, I just got a really bad feeling. And maybe she started to be like, well, why can't I have my phone? You know, that type of thing. Right. So, she's like, I just told the woman that I left my door unlocked and that my dog was going to get out. And she didn't have shoes on either. So oh. she was like, she uh, used this shoes. excuse, and, and of course the woman was trying to get her to not go back home, but she's like, no, you need to take me home. So She's the, lucky she took her home. Yes. I mean, let's be real. So the woman in the vehicle... Do you mind that I'm eating some of these? No, I don't. Okay. <laughs> Laura's eating chips. Yeah, sorry, I can... I really don't care at all. Whose chips are they? They're nobody's. So the woman notices that Carol has security cameras when they get back to the house. Oh. And she, of course, she said, Carol says, you know, the woman, it was like, well, you've got security cameras? And Carol's like, well, yeah, I do. Right. And she, like a lot of people do. Right. And then th- that when she went into the house, the woman just drove off, which is odd. Because the like, whole she, thing is very odd. Yes. Anyway. So she said, you know, I just put in this call to police. Just because it was very strange. Right. Um, and she said a big reason was because the woman seemed spooked by those cameras. Right. So police are like, we want to look at this security footage. Right. And when they do, they get the license plate off of the black SUV, and what do you know, it comes back to Pam Hop. She used her own vehicle? Yeah. Well, that's another thing, too. Like, <laughs> like if you're... That's but what they, I mean. I feel they like got a very vivid image of her driving the car, so even had she not, they, they, they got They might have recognized her anyways, but you think you would think... Because I think they went into this thinking it was her. When, oh, sure. When, when they got this, once they... That was why the other agency called the other okay. agency. Okay, so they had already kind of... Th- connected the dots. Connected, because this is a low-crime area, so... Yeah, yeah. this is small-town Missouri. Right. So, of course, police determined that Pam was trolling for somebody to kind of unknowingly frame Russ. 
And that's what she did to Lewis Gumpenberger. So the plan didn't work with Carol. And uh, Carol said that Pam told her in that short car ride that, you know, Carol would be acting as the intruder and that Pam would be the 911 caller for this Dateline reenactment. So essentially this woman, like you said, she averted possibly getting murdered. Right. She's lucky, though, that she let her go. Yeah, she, she could have just, just kept driving. But then she wouldn't have done the whole acting part. Well, right. So I mean, she would have had to just kill her, but... She would have had no reason. Or whatever she was going to do, but, you know, yeah. So, of course, the you know, the thought is Pam probably told Lewis, like, hey, we're just, we're just doing the reenactment. We're acting. Right. So, and, of course, he's going along with this because he's got that lowered mental capacity. Yeah, and... Ultimately, she maybe realized I have to pick somebody who's not completely, you know, that who has a lower IQ because she realized after the thing with Carol that, oh, maybe people aren't going to go for this. Right. So, you know, and she was getting desperate because after Russ was acquitted, you know, Russ was really open about pointing the finger at her. Right. So she's trying to frame him Again. Yeah. You know, like she had already <laughs> framed him. Right. She already did once, and then she... It was like almost an OCD type of thing. Like, she had to... Yeah, I don't know. She, I, don't know. I just think that she's just so narcissistic. Right. So, anyhow, on August 23rd, 2016, Pam Hupp is finally arrested oh, for the murder of Lewis Gumpenberger. Took long enough. Her only response was that she was cold in the back of the squad car and she wanted the AC turned down. And when they get to the station and try to begin questioning her, she immediately requests a lawyer. Oh, yeah. She then, she so she, yeah, I mean, she didn't talk at all. And she did ask to use the restroom once they got to the station and she had covertly put a pen in her waistband and she stabbed herself in the neck and wrists with a ballpoint pen. Oh. Um, Ow. And, but it was very superficial, and it's not, it was just like a way for her to kind of divert, you know, she then I think had to go to the hospital and kind of got the attention, or she got out of the jail system for a while sure, to not go to the hospital. Right, maybe she was thinking once I get to the hospital, maybe I can weasel my way out of this or something, somehow. but they did they kept her she and you know one of the detectives stayed. commented you know normally women in their late 50s don't just start committing heinous crimes right so like, they start out this like what like so they start looking doing these things all all her whole life well they do start looking into pam's past and they right. find out that two years after betsy's death right so betsy died in 2011 right so in 2013 pam's mother died after falling off the third floor balcony of her retirement community. And this retirement community had no dementia ward, unfortunately, because that's really what her mother needed. And they start remembering that Pam had made that comment in one of the videos about, oh, if I wanted life insurance money, my mom is worth a whole lot more. So they kind of make, they're like, huh. And now they find out since that time her mother has died. Oh, sure. So her mother had fallen off of a a third floor balcony at her retirement community, and she was last seen with her daughter, Pam Hupp, no no less. 
And uh, had she, they not heard of her or something? Like her this, face? Yeah, they hadn't because this was before Pam was ever looked at. You know, she wasn't allowed in that first trial, so nobody was, nobody knew about her publicly. Okay, okay, that makes sense. And then at that time, you know, the prosecutors and the investigators were all pro Pam Hupp for whatever right. reason, <laughs> right. so they weren't shedding suspicion on her. So no, nobody knew at this point. Okay. So Pam tells the staff at the retirement community that her mom will not be down for dinner or for breakfast the next morning. And they found eight times the legal limit of Ambien in her mother's system. And they said, you know, based on her mother's size, there was just absolutely no way her mother could have broke, there were like bars broken off of the um, balcony. So Pam Hupp was put on trial for the murder of Louis Gumpenberger, and they actually, the death penalty was on the table because she literally sacrificed a mentally disabled man for just to be involved in her little scheme. And uh, the family agreed if she would plead guilty with no trial that they would do life in prison without parole. Well, that so, was very kind of them because yes, it was, and so there was no trial, but she is incarcerated. She made an Alfred plea. Yes. Yeah. So she said, which is basically, um, you're. You say you're not. You say there's enough not, evidence. You say there's enough evidence, but you're not admitting guilt. Yeah, which, that's kind of a kick in the. It it is. It's a little. For the family, but they they were agreeable. So right in 2018, Lincoln County elected a new prosecutor named Mike Wood. So Leah Cheney is out of there. And thank goodness. Let me tell you, I think she is a bigger villain in this story than a lot of news outlets have portrayed her as. Right. She, if you if you watch, there's a ton of stuff on this case. So. Dateline, People Magazine investigates 48 hours. There's a reenactment with Renee Zellweger called The Thing About Pam. If you watch any of that, Leah Cheney is, uh, she's in, talks and is interviewed in all of these she, productions. Right, I can't believe she admits to these things just readily. Like, and, it's, and she to this day will not admit that Russ was wrongly convicted. Right. She's to this still, day. Right. Even will not admit it. Completely obvious. And you want to talk about like a narcissist? Like yeah. that's really, really disgusting behavior too. Right. Maybe it was like one narcissist covering for another narcissist. Yeah. It was almost. I feel like she's like similar to Pam in yeah. a weird way. In a weird way, maybe not as a vi- in vi- in a violent way, but. So she thinks her killing Louis Gumpenberger. She said, in another interview that I saw with her, she was yeah. like. Well, I don't see how one correlates with the other. Well, come on. <laughs> like, are you kidding me? It's just crazy. I mean, she hasn't been convicted, but to potentially she's killed at least three people. That could be either that's it or that could be the tip of the iceberg. She was in her 50s. Who knows what she was doing you know, yeah, prior to this. Right. So, um... You know, she's finally held accountable, and they are going to... I believe murder charges have been filed against right. Pam for Betsy's murder, 
But, of course, trials take years to, to come, and I don't believe that trial has happened yet. No. I could be wrong I on that. I don't think so. And, of course, Russ will be able to, like, make a victim impact statement in that trial. So, one little happy ending to this story is Russ actually married Carol McAfee, the woman from the, uh, that was lured for the Dateline <laughs> video. Russ and her are married. Wow. Did you know that? No. That was right at, right at the end of, pretty much all the documentaries talk about that at the end. But, right. Um, Russ now owns a motorcycle shop. He did sue the Lincoln County, I don't know who he sued exactly, but he got like a $2 million settlement, and rightfully so, I would say. Right. And he owns a motorcycle shop in our home state of Minnesota. Oh, that, I that's surprising. Yeah, I was I, I just read that. I had never heard that before. Here is four days ago. Yeah, she's looking good. She just showed me a picture of Pam. One of four her, day uh, recent picture. There's like a. No, that's her. That's her booking photo oh, from when she uh, she did her stab thing. Neck. I'm like, why? What is going on there? So yeah, that's the story of. A serial killer. Now, if you you know, they are gonna start looking into Pam's mother's murder or Whoa. death, which I say is a murder. So, but the problem with these things going back is that is there evidence? Do you know what I mean? Like they didn't come and collect any evidence. They well, didn't. if you watch the Dateline on this, mm -hmm. they actually do or did a reenactment at her mother's retirement home in the balcony, right? With like a dummy that weighed what her mother weighed to show that her mother could not have caused the damage of the balcony. So they're trying, anyway. Right, but... Um, but there's no statute of limitations on no. a murder charge, so hopefully... No. I just hope she's put away forever. and that's She already that. is. Right. So, so she can't get paroled. But what an odd... I mean, this case is just insane. And then you worry, too. You know, it's kind of a funny thing. I'm, I feel like she should be in a cell alone and not get to be around other people because I feel like she is that manipulative. One of the prison that. guards says that's what she does in jail. Right. She um she could cause so many issues within the jail. She did that's what she's been doing. Yeah. She she'll like I pit see that. she'll pit inmates against each other for fun. Right, cuz she's a psychopath. Yep. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And that's how she gets her kicks. Mhm. Mm that's how she gets off. So they she they really, you know, hope they I don't even give put her, her the, by herself. Pleasure of Solitary that. confinement. You come out your one hour a day by yourself. You know what I mean? Like she should not be around people for life, except for maybe the guards. Yeah. But even then, you hear those stories of you know manipulating the guards. I mean, that's just how dangerous she is. And that's what they said is she had because this they interviewed a guard that had was no longer working there. That's why she was so willing to talk speak yeah and uh she said she did try to manipulate the guards as well as the prisoners i hope that they d didn't like she they said she was like always trading like commissary items and just very yeah she so she's still able to kind of get her thrills in prison right that's what i mean she needs to be all all by herself yeah you know so anyway, that is the story. Um, I hope 
that you learn something about the case that you didn't already know if you're familiar with it. Yeah, it's very... And, uh... It's a, a very fascinating case, and it seems like they're always learning new <laughs> elements as they go along. It's I mean, very, the true crime word of the day, I say, very convoluted. Just convoluted. Yes, it's just, hard to keep up. Yeah, But it's it is. worth it to try to... Analyze. Uh, yeah, I think it's something, a case you'll see in, like, uh, criminal justice schools or law schools for years to come. Right, right. Like, and how, it, like, how did it get to that point? They could have stopped it from getting to that point. Much sooner. Much sooner. And there, there are, some, you know, certain people uh, to blame for that. And they won't be held accountable, and that is... Well, and one of the things that's been brought up about this case, too, is the prosecutorial immunity... Right. ...that prosecutors have, and mm -hmm. um, that's... Russ said, too, you know, Leah Cheney's never going to be held responsible for her role because of that. Well, you still... There is still misconduct. There's misconduct, and you still can't break the law... Uh, well, were any of those things breaking laws or laws? There's well, got to the be laws the, against. The using the uh, checking out that evidence that they said disappeared. Right. That's got to be illegal. Right. There's, right. So, so you would think if they really dug deep enough, they could actually maybe hold these people responsible. Di you know, disbarment or whatever it is that they can do. But I guess prosecutorial immunity is like it's really hard to get a prosecutor in trouble. The, it, it, like, that's the impression I, I got when they were talking about it. Well, this goes beyond the scope, though. This has to go beyond the scope of any rules yeah. that, that relate to that. I mean, this is... It is crazy. The abuse of power. Yeah, it's nuts. You shouldn't be able to abuse your power as a prosecutor. No, absolutely not. And that's what happened. So we hope you keep listening. And uh, we will be back in, within a week or two. And I think yeah. next time we're going to, one of the cases we're going to do, I'm not going to say who it is, but it's going to be a very unknown case to people to most people. Yes. And uh, so that'll be good. It was a request from our cousin Kelly. Yes. I call yes. him Kelly. I always will. It's Leo. Leo. Mm -hmm. So uh, shout out to him as well. Yes. And uh, yeah, we will uh, see you guys soon. See you soon. Ta-ta. <laughs>